Thank you for listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit our website, centurybaptist.org, or download the Century Baptist Church app. Good morning, Century Sam family. I'm Rod Zimmerman. I'm one of the elders here. Let us turn to Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. Matthew chapter 11. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, our Father, we so treasure your word this morning. We are grateful to you, Father, for having sent Jesus, not only to teach us, but to show us the way, to show us your love, your compassion. Father, open our hearts this morning for your word. And I pray that as we listen and hear that by your spirit you would help us also to be doers of your word. We wait upon you today for your peace, your encouragement. Lord, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Rod. You know, sometimes there's a moment in a movie or a TV show when the doctor comes in with his clipboard and says, well, do you want the good news or the bad news first? And the main character gets to decide. It kind of depends. That determines the drama of the rest of the, of the program. I was actually thinking about this because Paul Nather, who's been on sabbatical, our lead pastor, for a couple months, he's going to be back next week. We'll start a Christmas series next week, so we're excited to have him back. And I was kind of thinking, well, I'm probably going to have to sit down with him and say, well, do you want the good news or the bad news while you were gone about uh, how things have been gone? Thankfully, there's way more good news than bad news because it's gone fantastic and you guys are great and our staff is great. So we're looking forward to having him back and, uh, and seeing what God has uh, done in his life over his sabbatical. But today, as we get to chapter, we're finishing up chapter 11, 
In the book of Matthew, we're going to be confronted with some bad news and some good news. Jesus decided to give us the bad news first and then give us the good news. So we're going to start with a, a striking confrontation and then a serious invitation. It begins, let's just walk through this text and see what Matthew is telling us here. So then he tells us in verse 20, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So this, is, this word denounce is a very strong word. So when Jesus denounces something, we pay attention. Something is going on. He wants to get a point across, and he's very serious. What are the stakes? Well, he's saying the cities where I preached the gospel, where I did mighty works, they saw these things and heard these things, and they didn't repent. What was the consequence? Well, verse 21 he says, woe, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. This woe is a serious, a, a, a solemn warning or judgment. In chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus will give a lot of woes to the Pharisees for their, uh, how they've handled their ministry. But here he says, woe to these towns. Chorazin is only mentioned here once and in Luke barely, and Bethsaida was close to Capernaum, which was Jesus' home base, but not much is said about it. So, but he says, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Now, mentioning Tyre and Sidon in this passage, this is, these are cities in the Old Testament who were notoriously sinful. We're talking about legendary evil. And everyone around, when, they said that, when Jesus said those cities, would have known exactly what he was talking about. Just like whatever town you grew up in, you had that sports rivalry, and everyone mentioned that town, and like, ugh, that town, those guys. This is what it was. So Jesus says, it would, it, if I would have done this in that town with those guys, they would have repented. You guys ignored me. He says, but I tell you, verse 22, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now, it's interesting that Matthew doesn't actually record Jesus doing any miracles in any, either of these cities. And Mark just mentions Bethsaida a couple times. So what is he talking about? So Jesus says, if I would have done what I did for them, for them in the Old Testament, in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. You guys saw it all and you didn't. Well, it's good to remind ourselves about the nature of Scripture. And John reminds us at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, verse 30, when John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, meaning his book that he wrote. But these are written, means the ones that I included, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is basically reminding us, there's no way we could have written down everything that Jesus did and everything that he said. And so when Jesus says, the works that I did in your town, we don't have to have a record of them. We know that he was there. He walked around that whole region doing great signs and wonders, healing people and preaching, and preaching the good news of the kingdom. And he says this very interesting phrase. It would have been it'd be more bearable, more bearable on the day of judgment for those ancient, legendarily sinful cities than it will be for you. Now this is Jesus giving us a hint, giving us a clue that there will be different degrees of punishment in hell because we have this comparison. 
And we see in Matthew 10 it showed up when he said, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for a town that rejects my disciples. In Luke 12, Jesus says, the, the servant who knows his master's will but doesn't do it, disobeys, deserves a severe beating, but the one who did not know it will deserve a beating, but it will be a light beating. So now let's make sure that we get this understand it straight. There is a sin that leads to the wrath of God, and condemnation in hell. There is a, the decision that needs to be made is John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we're not talking about this here, whether you go to heaven or hell, whether you are given new eternal life or eternal conscious punishment in hell. This is after that. So we need to see God as not only delivering the judgment of being condemned to hell, but then the sentence beyond that of the degree of punishment. And Jesus says there will be different degrees for different degrees of wickedness, different degrees of rebellion and rejection of him. So it's very insightful about how he, how he presents this to people. And it's also very jarring because of the impact. It's going to be more bearable for them, even though they were wicked, than for you who saw the Son of Man come do miracles and preach the gospel in your midst and you didn't do anything. He goes on and talks about Capernaum. Will you be exalted into heaven? Will you be blessed just because I lived here? Just because I did miracles here and taught, he began his ministry there, it was his home base of operations. Will you be blessed? No. It says, you'll be brought down to Hades for if the works that I did in you were done in Sodom, okay, now pause here. This is, now, he mentions Tyre and Sidon, which everyone would have known, but he pulls out Sodom? I mean, this is as serious as it gets, and the people listening would have been absolutely shocked. If the things I did, I did for, in Sodom, it would have remained until this day instead of being completely destroyed. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is fascinating because... Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about the people of Capernaum resisting Jesus, rejecting him, trying to run him out of town or get him arrested. It doesn't say anything. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is, your indifference to me, you just heard me, you saw miracles, and you kind of, meh, let's go back to fishing. Who cares? Your indifference will be punished more severely than the sin of Sodom. This is very sobering. It would have been very shocking for them, but even for us. I mean, there has never been a time when we've had more Bible available to us, more content, more reliable, trustworthy teaching on any platform and any media you, media you could possibly imagine. The works of Jesus and the words of Jesus are everywhere in our culture. Indifference to that was more punishable than even the legendary sin of Sodom. So keep that in mind as we take seriously our role to share that gospel and that hope of who Jesus is to people around us because their indifference to him, their ignoring of him, will cause them to be punished and condemned forever. Jesus is pleading with these people to take him seriously because it's life or death. In verse 25, Jesus continues and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Now, just 
This is Jesus being consistent. When his disciples said, how should we pray? What does he do? He says, he starts off by saying, our Father in heaven, may your name be glorified. Jesus begins his prayer with God. We need to begin our prayers with God, who God is, what he's done, and saying thank you. What does that do? I I encourage you, as you think about the pattern of your prayer, to begin with talking about who God is and what he's done, either for you or in general. Begin in a posture of thanksgiving, of of humility. It kind of puts you in the right mindset. You're God, I'm not. I'm coming to you as my heavenly Father, humbly. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. And Jesus does this. He shows us, again, in this prayer, thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, he doesn't mean spiritually wise and understanding. He means people who are smart, educated, wise in their own eyes or in other people's eyes, their understanding. They've hidden them for the people who should know better and revealed them to children. Jesus' message was for everyone, not just the smart ones. And the simplicity of his message confused the smart guys. It was so simple and so accessible that they missed it. It was gloriously available and accessible. And in God's sovereignty, in essence, his kingdom was hidden in plain sight from people who should have known better and should have seen it first. This isn't the first time Jesus talks about the value of this humility and coming to Jesus like a child, with the faith of a child. In Matthew 18, the disciples come and say, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? They, they, kinda, they ask this question a lot at different times. Who's going to be the greatest? How's this going to shake out? Are we going to be rulers or how's it going to work? And Jesus wants to just, guys, stop talking about this. He brings a child and he says, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. He's just turning the conventions completely on their head. And he's saying, this message that I have is for everyone. You don't have to have a college education. You don't need to be a rabbi. You don't need to be super rich. This message is for all people. And if people miss it, it's because they probably are not, not even willing to look down where everyone else is, the ones Jesus came to save. The beauty and simplicity of the gospel requires the humility of a child to receive. And this is what makes the gospel a universal gospel. Some missionaries have failed because they've taken their gospel and their concept of the gospel to another country and tried to import it into that country. And they have no, because it's so contextualized to their setting, whatever that might be, it doesn't translate. That's not the actual gospel. If our gospel cannot be universally presented to anyone, no matter how rich you are, what country you live in, what kind of government you have, it's not the true gospel. This is the kingdom that Jesus brought. And he brought it so it could be received with the humility of a child. And Jesus goes on in verse 27 and makes a massive theological point. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. So Jesus is saying two things here, very important things. He's talking about his relationship to the Father, and he's talking about our relationship to the Father through Jesus. First of all, he says no one knows the Father except the Son. Here's here's what that means, and here's how people would have heard that. Only God can know God. 
Because when he says the word know, he doesn't, doesn't mean understand facts about God. He means to know him in a true relationship, a familiarity and in intimacy. This word is more than just intellectual knowledge. And so what he's saying is only God can know God. Only the Son can know the Father. He's once again claiming his own deity, that he came as the Son of God to us. But secondly, he's making it explicit. And this is important for us to remind ourselves of this, that he says the only ones who can know the Father will be known to the Father through the Son whom reveals, who the Son reveals to him. So basically he's saying anyone who is saved is saved through Jesus only. And this is essential to understanding salvation according to Scripture. There's so many people now trying to find and convince you that there are other ways, there are different ways to get to know God, to know, to get to heaven or whatever they say. But Jesus himself and the Bible explicitly teaches that no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Jesus makes this clear, John 14, 6. We know it fairly well. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. That's how you get to the Father. You're reconciled to the Father except through me, Jesus says. But then it goes on. We don't always include this verse. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We see God through Jesus. Jesus shows us. Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God. He shows us who God is and not only helps us understand him, but helps us get to him by becoming the atonement, be making a way for us to get and be reconciled to God. John 17, when Jesus is praying, praying he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the Father, and the one, as the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the only way of salvation through Jesus to the Father. So how do we get this? Well, that's where the invitation comes in verse 28. It's a wonderful invitation. He says, come to me. Come to me. This is not a, an appeal to learn more information or get a class. He says, come to me. It's a personal invitation. And he says, all you who labor and are heavy laden. What are, in the context, what is he talking about? The, the labor and the burden is the burden of people oppressed by religious legalism trying to keep the law, earn their righteousness, and save themselves. And Jesus says, come to me. You cannot bear that burden. If you come, I will give you rest. And he says, rest for your souls. Free from the burden of trying to save yourself. Because that's what the people were taught. That's what the Pharisees, that's what the religious system was. You had to accomplish certain things, do certain things to achieve your righteousness and make God happy with you. And he's just saying, you need to leave that behind. And Jesus, he, he pulls this phrase, and you will find rest for your souls. This is directly quoted from Jeremiah 6. Now, Jeremiah 6 is brutal. I mean, if you read through Jeremiah, it's, oh, it's hard. God is really pouring out his judgment on the nation of Israel because of their disobedience and their rebellion, their rejection of him. So it is serious. But in the middle of chapter 6, there's this little flower that just appears out of nowhere. 
And in verse 16 in Jeremiah, it says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. And Jesus is quoting this, and he's saying, Look for the ancient path. It's me. I'm the one. I'm the ancient path. I'm the good way. If you walk with me, I'm the one who can give you rest for your souls. He says, I will give you peace. I can give you peace in all situations, no matter what. He says, by quoting this verse, he's talking about this path. But if you look, it says, find the good way and walk in it. You still, you can find the path, but you don't just sit there and admire the path. You have to actually walk on the path. There's still actually work to do. There's a role to play. And that's why he uses the illustration of the yoke. Now, a yoke, not as an egg yoke, but as in a yoke that you would use on the farm. You put it around an animal so they can pull your plow or your cart. Or humans had yokes too. You build a structure, usually to hang on your shoulders, so you could carry heavy loads without just having to lug them with your arms. So whatever, either one, it works. It's a yoke. And you wear it. And it's a burden. But Jesus is saying, don't keep wearing that yoke. Take my yoke. Take my yoke. So he's comparing these two different yokes. The old one is a burden you can't bear with work that leads to nothing that you, you can't fulfill the law and it won't work and you won't accomplish anything anyway. You're serving self and sin and it will only lead to despair and destruction. Why is Jesus' yoke better? Because the load is lighter the work is better, and he's the master. So Jesus is just inviting us. Leave behind impossible legal demands that you cannot accomplish on your own and take this gloriously rewarding discipleship. Get rid of the burden of ruthless oppression and bear the freedom of joyful obedience. Reject the harsh master that drives with a whip and embrace the gentle shepherd who guides with his word. Don't bear the impossible burden that you must bear by yourself, but bear the eternal mission that you fulfill with the Spirit. He says, follow me. My way is good. My yoke is easy. My burden is light because you're no longer alone. I am with you. And this is the beauty of that ancient path that he calls us to, to find rest for our souls and to find it in him. So he gives us the bad news. In a sense, the bad news magnifies the good news. There is punishment and condemnation for those who reject and there is blessing and joy for those who receive his invitation. So what can we take away from this passage today? There's a few things that I just want us to think about. First of all, our responsibility. Think about responsibility. The people of those towns were responsible or accountable for what they heard and what they saw. That's why the judgment was given against them. Now, there's two layers of accountability and responsibility in this passage. There's one that's the overall layer of salvation. You're responsible when you hear the gospel, see Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he said, and respond by repenting and trusting in Jesus. That's the first layer. After that, there's the layer of service or working in the kingdom. 
And this is implied when he says to find the road and walk in it from Jeremiah when that's quoted there. So we are responsible and accountable for what we do after he has saved us, what we do for the kingdom. We can't take credit for what someone else does. We can't receive uh, or we can't give blame and pass blame when someone else does something to prevent us. We're accountable. Was I faithful with the mission? Am I being faithful with the mission God has given me? It reminds me of the parable of the talents. This shows up in Matthew 25. So Matthew 24 and 25 talk about the end, when Jesus comes back. What's it going to look like when Jesus comes back? And how is it going to, how's it going to go down? He gives us some information about that. So tucked in that passage, talking about the end times, is this parable of the talents. So we're in Matthew 11 now. This will be, we'll talk about this in Matthew 25, although at this rate we may not get there until Jesus comes back, but we're going to be <laughs> working on it. So Lord willing, if we get to Matthew 25, we'll read about the parable of the talents. Talents was just a way to describe money. The master gave his servants different amounts of money. Ten talents, five talents, one talent. He said, be faithful with what I've given you. The guy who had ten made ten more. The guy who had five made five more. The guy who had one hit, it, hit his one and came back and said, I was scared, so here's your one back. The master greatly rewarded the one who had gotten ten more and the one who got five more and severely punished the one who did, wasn't faithful with what he was given. And the message is, the response is, you had a responsibility. I gave you that responsibility. What did you do with it? Even if you were given 10 or 5 or 6 or 20 or whatever it was, were you faithful to your master? How did you handle that responsibility? You think of, I mean, special forces in the military. You have people who are enlisted and they serve faithfully, but there's some missions that require special training, extensive uh, education, training exposure, and there's a lot more time that goes into it. Well, why? Because of the mission. You don't send someone through all of that training and preparation for years and years and then go send them to a desk job in the middle of nowhere. No. The fulfillment of that responsibility is go do the mission. Go do what you've been prepared to do. That's the whole point. Be faithful with what you've been given. Jesus made that clear in Luke 12. If you've been given much, much will be required. To whom they entrusted much, they'll demand the more. It is an expectation in the kingdom. And every believer, every person who's been saved by God's grace has a unique role to play, a unique responsibility in the kingdom. And this isn't just personal. I mean, you're accountable for your fulfilling your responsibility, but we also live in community. We come together as a church. So you might be sitting there saying, man, he's talking about this mission. Do I have a mission? Do I know what it is? Am I supposed to be doing something else? You may not see it yet, but that's why we come together because in community we see how everybody works together, how the body comes together to accomplish more together. If you allow me, I mean, you think about a football team. Even if you don't know anything about football, you know that there's giant six foot five, 300 pound guys and there's little guys who can run really fast. Okay, that's all you need to know. Every, they have a specific role that they play. And if all 11 guys on the offense do what they're supposed to do and follow their assignment and fulfill their responsibility, then you win, you score. 
Not everybody's the same. Not everybody's been given the same body type or speed or ability or comprehension, but everybody works together. This is that principle all throughout Scripture of the gifts of the Spirit that are given to the body for the good of the body and the kingdom. And remember that God gives the gifts, God gives the guidance, and God gives the grace to accomplish whatever he calls us to do. And Jesus honors faithfulness. He will honor faithfulness to that responsibility. We must take it seriously. And it directly affects our reward in heaven, which is the second thing. We're going to talk about the reward. So just like there are different degrees of punishment for those who rebel against God, there's also different degrees of reward in heaven for those who are faithful to him. Now remember, this comes after that determination, after the judgment is made. Have you received Christ, the Son, and have life in him, or have you rejected him and been condemned by God's wrath to hell? So after that, before we talked about different degrees of punishment, but the flip side of that is, there's also different degrees of reward. Now, just like in hell, it's all hell, so it's all bad, even though there are different degrees. I can't comprehend that, but God knows. Same with heaven. It's heaven. It's all good. It's heaven. The new heavens and the new earth, it'll be paradise. But somehow there's different rewards. And sometimes we get a little bit like, should we be talking about rewards in church? Is that, I thought we were supposed to be humble. No, it's not for us. It's for God's glory. Yes, that's good because Jesus is the greatest treasure and our focus needs to be on him. And Jesus says, your faithfulness will be rewarded and rewarded in, in the measure that you are faithful. He says this in Matthew 10. He, said, he talked about a prophet's reward and a righteous person's reward. In Matthew 16, he says, the Son of Man is coming back with the angels to give, a, to give each one according to what he has done. So there is a different degree based on faithfulness. And this is a good motivation for us, and, and it's helpful. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 kind of lays it out a little bit clearer. He uses an, an analogy that we can, can spend a little time with to get this idea through. He talks about building in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. He says, if anyone builds on the foundation, so the foundation would be the foundation of your faith, Okay, this is, he's talking about believers, those who are Christians. Anyone builds on the foundation, so it's what you do after you're saved, how you are obedient, how you follow Jesus and live as a disciple. If you build on that with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. So he's contrasting building materials. Now, you may not think of building things with silver, many, many things, but the metaphor is, is it precious and valuable or is it disposable? Because he says in verse 13, each one's work will become manifest. Manifest is a fancy word for evident, obvious. Your work will be laid bare. Everyone will know and everyone will see. For the day, the judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So after you become a Christian and you live as a disciple, you have instructions for following Jesus your faithfulness is that building upon the foundation. Which materials are you going to use? Things that are eternal, that last, that are valuable to God, or things that are not? Verse 14. If the work done, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. 
If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So there's two results. The fire will lay bare what you actually did. So if you're thinking of like a house, how did you build the house? I was trying to think, is this like a three little pigs analogy? But not really because there's a wolf and there's whatever. So not three pigs. But you build a house, you build two houses. You have one guy that built a house, another one. What did you build it out of? What's going to matter? Because the fire is going to melt everything down and you're going to see if it was good, quality, eternal, valuable, or not. I did think of, no, three pigs is not it, but like if you're like gold mining. I've never mined for gold, but I can imagine you're looking for gold, right? So you dig around and find gold. So the master says, go find gold. Two guys go in their mines. One guy does all the research, does the planning. He works very hard to pull out the most precious spots to find the veins that are, that are in there. And he comes out with a pile outside the mine. The other guy just kind of goes in and like, I don't know. I'm just going to build a big pile. I'm just going to work really hard. It's going to be really impressive. So he goes out this giant pile. Looks really impressive. Like, wow, that guy really worked really hard. He must have done a great job. And the, the, the boss says, okay, let's find out. And you melt it all down, and guess what? You'll find out how much gold is actually there. If there is, it will remain, and you'll see it, and it will be obvious. Even if you have a giant pile. So you can see the hopefully, the metaphor, people spend a lot of time doing a lot of things. But if you do them for the wrong reason, for the wrong purpose, for yourself, for your glory, the Bible, Jesus already talked way back in Matthew 6 about doing things in public so people see you. He says, you've already received your reward in full. There's nothing else after this. So if you build a big pile of stuff that you think is good, but it doesn't actually, is actually faithful to what God has called you to do, it's just going to be melted down and burn and, and, and go away. That's why it's important when we build on the foundation, when we live as a disciple, that it is in faithfulness to God and with a focus on the reward. It's not bad to think about the reward. That's a good thing because the things that are, he's going to reward are the things that he is pleased with, that he loves us doing. So it's not going in opposition like, I love God, but I want all this stuff. It's, I want God, and I want all the things that he is going to bless me with. The other thing is, you think about rewards in heaven. There's not going to be the same envy or covetousness. Like you think, well, what if a guy has like a ton of stuff? And notice that he doesn't tell us what the stuff is. There'll be stuff there. It'll be a reward, something. But he doesn't say like bags of money or a giant house. I know we make songs about big mansions or whatever, but it doesn't say what it is. Which I think is on purpose because he doesn't want us focused on the stuff. He wants us focused on him. But the stuff will be there. But I think as you're walking in heaven and you see a guy with tons of treasure, whatever it is, your response isn't going to be, did he really deserve that? Or how come he got that much and I didn't get that much? It's going to be, whoa, tell me about what God did through you. What's your story? It's going to be worship. Thank you, God, for how he used you. It's not envy. It's not going to be petty. It's going to be perfect because you'll know, because you'll just sit across from Jesus. He's going to give you exactly what you'll deserve and you know it. So everyone is in the same, in the same boat. And we'll be able to celebrate with everyone's reward no matter what it is. Whatever it is, it comes from Jesus and he is the greatest treasure and it flows out of his grace. So the third thing is our rest. 
He invites us to come to him and receive rest. But rest, okay, so don't think of rest as the opposite of work. Sometimes we think of, I work hard and I want to go home and rest. It's not, that's not what this means. It's rest as in the opposite of restlessness. Not retirement or relaxing or vacation. It's freedom from the anxiety of relying on yourself to determine your own eternal destiny. And so rest for your soul and labor, faithful labor in the kingdom go hand in hand. There's rest and there's work. It's possible to be at rest and at war against sin at the same time. That's why Jesus, his yoke is a yoke of discipleship. There's work to be done, but it's the glorious work of the kingdom. And his demands for us are not less, church. In fact, they're more, remember? Your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So his demands are greater, but his grace is greater still. And he's telling us, you don't get rest on your own. It's because of me and my grace. He leads, we follow in his strength. He commands and we obey by his power. He teaches and we learn by his spirit. And built into this work, because work in the kingdom can be hard, but it's good. It leads to joy and fulfillment. It's built in peace and confidence and reward. And Jesus' invitation doesn't release us from all obligations or rules. That's why he doesn't say, Take off the yoke and you're free. You don't have to worry about anything. No, he actually gives us tons of things in the Bible that we're supposed to do and don't do. There's lots of things. We're supposed to follow them obediently, faithfully. But we do that because we trust him and we love him as an outpouring of the life he's given us. From the outside, what they see is rules that ruin your fun. Right? I don't want to go to church, read the Bible, because it ruins my fun and I don't want to give it up. That's all they see, rules. From the inside, we see someone loved me enough to show me the way to actually make this work to give me joy and rest for my soul. We worship. That's what this church, our church, that's what the culture desperately needs is people of Christ taking seriously their holiness and righteousness and living according to his word and finding rest for our souls. So from this passage, it's a, it's a striking, sober reminder. We need to remember our responsibility with what he has given us. We need to remember the priority of seeking treasures in heaven and remember to embrace the rest that he offers as we follow him. Your faithfulness, church, your faithfulness to use the gifts he's given will please God. Your diligence to work for the kingdom treasures that, that he describes will honor God, and your perseverance to remain in his rest will glorify God. And remember, he gives the gifts, he gives the guidance, and he gives the grace to do everything that he's commanded us to do, no matter what it is. It's our role to be faithful so that when we see him, he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our joy, and that's our rest. Would you please pray with me this morning, church? Lord, we are so thankful that you gave us the bad news. Bad news can be not fun, but it shows the greatness, the gloriousness of the good news. The bad news of the judgment that everyone receives when they don't take you seriously and follow you as a disciple. The glorious good news of all who come to you will find rest Rest for our souls. Rest from 
trying to save ourselves and putting ourselves entirely at your feet. We believe that we only, we get the only way that we can be saved, that we can receive that rest is through you, Jesus. The only way we can be reconciled is to, to the Father is through you. And the only way we can receive you is in faith, trusting who you are, what you've done, and believing in you and following you, rejecting our sin, repenting and turning to you, and trusting in you. Thank you for making the way, the path, the ancient path, so clear and for showing us that path. Help us to follow it and to find rest. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand?